0: This morning's lesson. So, I'm really disappointed. I don't own as many paperback copies of a book. I'm more of a digital person, and I wanted to bring it in just to show you all. That, you know here's the book that we're going through, and I forgot it again this morning. So, nah, that's all right. Yeah. There you go. Oh, there. Yeah, there you go. Sonya's got it right there. Yep. So that's what it looks like. Look at that. It's and extremely meaty. T- yes, yeah. it is. That is. Uh, yeah. Re- read each sentence. Uh, you know twice yep so here's a copy here's what the book looks like again really helpful I think uh, Ferguson's also got a, like a reduced down version I think it's called who is the Holy Spirit so oh, is that the other one? Yeah, yeah I think that one's a little it bit more not. reduced yeah but this is really very good yes so again we'll be going through that book um, so right now this morning we're going to be entering lesson two of chapter one so if you remember from last week just by way of a quick recap, we, we really spent a good amount of time, um, we spent a little bit of time in regards to the history of the doctrine, right, how is the doctrine developed in the history of the church concerning the Holy Spirit, and, and then we started working our way through some of the biblical texts, especially in the Old Testament, really trying to trace and develop the idea of, uh, of the, the Hebrew term ruach, which is the, the word for spirit, and then pneuma, which is the word for spirit in, the, in, in, in Greek. And we really tried to help, okay, what, what's the idea, right? What, what's the sense that we should be picking up on? And if you remember, the focus of the Old Testament was not on the spirit being non-material, right? But it was a focus on power or um, this, this life, right? Um, uh, and so, so I wanted to just, on, on the top of your notes, there were just a couple of really good quotes that Ferguson had that to me were like, man, this is this is worth bringing up. So I'll just read that first one. Divine spirit thus denotes the energy of life in God, and I just again thought that was really helpful. And then you can see on the on the on the remaining two quotes that um, then we then we hopped in Genesis one verse two and spent some time. What what does that mean for the spirit to hover over? The waters, right? What what's going on there, right? This um, spirit at work in creation. So then we kind of trace that idea through. We looked at a couple other texts: Isaiah sixty three and Deuteronomy thirty two. So with that, let's now go into our our major or our first section this morning. So kind of continuing on with this theme, we're going to cover governing presence. So on your notes, governing presence. Alongside the, and again, um, because we're going through Ferguson's book, I just want to note that mostly what I'm going to be going over are going to be a lot of quotes and different material pulling from his book. Um, And so, uh, you know, with just, um, and with some comments or, or pauses. So under governing presence, alongside the admittedly scanty or minimal references to the work of the Spirit, As the executive in ordering creation, there lies another fundamental strand of Old Testament teaching. The Spirit of God is the executive of the powerful presence in the governing of the created order. So let me just say it one more time. The Spirit of God is the executive, or the one who executes, the powerful presence of God. In the governing of the created order, so we so we we saw this idea in Genesis one two right, um, this uh, you know void and formless right, and then what is the spirit doing? The spirit is creating and governing right, uh, and then we saw that in Deuteronomy thirty two, the spirit forming and and, and creating um, a people right. When we looked at Isaiah sixty three with with Deuteronomy thirty two, so now what we're going to see is how um, how this. This idea also um, serves in, in a couple of ways so we, we touched on last week and e- even now that this idea of spirit in the Old Testament or, or the the term for spirit expresses the idea of wind or air in motion and it serves well as a bridge to uh, a bridge term to describe the outgoing of the creator to the creation and in, in fact um, Ezekiel. He suggests this intimate relationship. We see this correlation together in Ezekiel 39, right? Where we see, you know, God's power presence among his people. We see this relationship between God's spirit and God's face or God's presence. So turn with me to Ezekiel 39. And let's read verse... Twenty-nine, Ezekiel 39, verse 29. And I'll take a volunteer.
1: And I will not hide my face any more from them. When I pour out my spirit out of the house of Israel, is the Lord God.
0: All right, excellent. So... Notice that, right? I will not hide my what? My face from them anymore when I pour out my spirit. So there's this strong correlation between God's face, or another way we can think of it is his presence, right? And his spirit. Now, the Lord has revealed, um, uh, or let me say it this way, the Lord's power presence is revealed In his spirit with a view to fulfilling a variety of goals in redemptive history. And so we're going to hit on on two of these where we're going to see. All right. What does this look like with God's governing, powerful presence, especially as it relates to uh, to to mankind? So the first one, um, like sub bullet, if you will, uh, relates to the gifts of statesmanship or craftsmanship. And here uh, Ferguson says, He not only carries individuals beyond their normal physical capacities, he gives them abilities which extend beyond their native wit. And we're going to see this specifically with the, with the gift of statesmanship and craftsmanship. And again, what we're going to see is this connection that the Spirit not only does this with the material order, I know we saw in Deuteronomy 32, with a nation, but then also within, uh, with individuals in the Old Testament. So turn with me back to the first book. Go to uh, um, Genesis 41. And we'll just see one example, even though uh, uh, Ferguson cites a couple other in the book of Daniel, where it talks about Nebuchadnezzar's response. Uh, Genesis 41. And if I can have a volunteer read Genesis 41, verses 37 to 39. Excellent. So, if you remember the context of Genesis 41, this is dealing with the, uh, um, jo- uh, the, the jo- Joseph interpreting the dream of Pharaoh, and it's talking about the upcoming famine. And then uh, Joseph provides a wise response about storing, right, for, um, in, in preparation for the famine. And then Pharaoh's response in verse 39 is indicative, or sorry, in verse 38 Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And then in verse thirty nine, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Right. But it really has this idea in regards to governing, right, a nation or a people. So it's this this um, statesmanship, if you will. And like I said, the same thing was said um, with Nebuchadnezzar, with Daniel, So when Daniel similarly provided interpretation to the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's response was that the spirit of the most holy gods dwells within Daniel, right? Who's providing you this wisdom. And uh, Ferguson provides a helpful note here. So we see these two examples, right, With, with this idea of governance and how the spirit's involved that way. And um, and Ferguson notes in Isaiah 11 verses one through five, it talks about how the spirit of the Lord will rest on the Messiah. And 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 it provides seven descriptions of the spirit, one of them being the spirit of the Lord. But two of those descriptions are that the spirit is a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of understanding. So so we we see some of these connections coming together, this idea of wisdom. Right with the spirit, and this ties in with governing and discernment, right especially with this idea of statesmanship and and Ferguson helps here with a helpful kind of like little summary, just as the spirit produced order and purpose out of the formless and empty primeval created stuff in Genesis one verse two so when the nation was newborn but Remained in danger of social chaos, talking specifically about the exodus, right? And then when they um, uh, uh, passed through the exodus. The spirit of God worked creatively to produce right government, order and direction among the refugees from Egypt. And again, he cites Isaiah 63 verses 7 through 14. We, and we, and we went through that um, last week and we're actually going to spend some more time in that text this morning. So, so we looked at the gift of statesmanship. And now secondly, I want to see this idea of craftsmanship where um, God's spirit granted gifts of design and its execution among his called out people. So sub bullet two: God's spirit also grants gifts of design and their execution among God's people. And we're going to take a look at the tabernacle and the spirit. So look what, um, go one book over into the book of Exodus. Again, big picture, what are we doing? We're, we are doing a really big biblical word study, right? What is the term ruach? What, what's conveyed in some of these Old Testament texts, right? And what we're doing is we're getting you know, more into the forest, so to speak, looking at individual trees trying to bring off some of these nuances before we really start to build some of the doctrine from the rest of the Bible. So in Exodus 31, if I can have a volunteer, we're going to read about the spirit and then the gifts of design, and it's going to relate to the tabernacle or God's, the place of God's dwelling, his special dwelling among his people. Exodus 31, if I could have a volunteer read verses 1 through 11.
1: its Utensils and the pure lamp stand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering of all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, and the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall be.
0: Excellent. So we especially see in verse three, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Right? with ability and intelligence, knowledge, and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs. And what does this specifically relate to? This specifically relates to the tabernacle, the special dwelling place of God with his people. And this is going to be very important. The same thing is said in, in, in Exodus 35, so we won't turn there. So to quote Ferguson, The beauty and symmetry of the work accomplished by these men, in the construction of the tabernacle not only gave aesthetic pleasure where it was beautiful to sight, but a physical pattern in the heart of the camp which served to reestablish concrete expressions of the order and glory of the creator and his intentions for his creation. So I want to pause right there. So so what? what is he saying? He's saying that We see this connection, how the spirit again is at work and given to these to to, to these individuals for the construction of the tabernacle and the tabernacle. Right. And and you could go back and listen. I think, you know, um, the previous Sunday school, we we covered quite a bit of that, of this overlap of uh, tabernacle and creation. Um, where we see God dwelling with man. And so in the same way we can see this connection between the Spirit and creation. Now we see the Spirit at work in the creation of the tabernacle, which was to be a visible replica, right, of creation, of, 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 a mini Eden, right? The place of God's of God's dwelling. And Ferguson notes: a hint was thus given that the work of quote-unquote recreation must begin with the chosen people. Among them stood earthly reflections of the dwelling place of God. As Calvin rightly says, the tabernacle was a sort of visible image of God. Here already in the Exodus narrative, we find the principle will emerge with full clarity only later in the New Testament. The spirit, and and, and it's this, the spirit orders, or if you want to say, or reorders and ultimately beautifies God's creation. And, and what Ferguson does is he then traces this really quickly, this theme of God's special dwelling with man and creation, tabernacle, then temple, and then finding its apex in Jesus Christ, right? The true dwelling of God with man, right? John 1.14, right? He tabernacled. Among us, and then how uh, that's shared with God's people as God's temple. So, so, so our two our two sub bullets, if you will, under this idea of governing presence relate to um, the spirit and the gift of statesmanship, or governing or ordering His people with His presence, and then secondly, um, uh, focusing even on uh, this dual aspect of. Creation um, uh, and and, and recreating God's special dwelling with man and the spirit at work to to do that right and well. So then next on our notes, we have the recreating spirit or he uses Latin terms that, you know, I don't know Latin. So we're just we're just going to go with what's in parentheses. (laughs) So it's the recreating spirit. So it's not now simply the spirit in creation, but it is the spirit at work in redemption, specifically in recreation. And this, and this will be important. In fact, he's got an entire chapter. I don't remember on your notes. I think it's number, uh, number six. He's got an entire chapter that we're going to spend and really think about how new creation ties in with the spirit. What does that mean? What does that look like? What are some of these concepts like regeneration? The giving of um, uh, or, or, or regiving of life, right? We're going to see all, all those things tie in together. So, the um, you see here, the ministry of the Spirit is not limited to gifts which serve the national establishment of God's people. His work is also moral and redemptive, right? So, it's not just this national creating, building, but it is also redemptive that. Just in the same way that God is at work in saving, so the Spirit is at work in saving. There is this moral or ethical aspect. And we see this, right, like when we, when we looked at Isaiah 63, where the Spirit of God was called the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit has these terms associated with Him that are moral or ethical and associated, associated with these concepts. In fact, in Psalm 51.11, David confesses that his relationship to God's spirit as holy was jeopardized by moral failure. And, and, and we're going to take, um, take a minute and look at Psalm 51 in, in, in just a little bit. Right now we're going to work through Isaiah 63 again to bring out a couple more things. And then we're going to come back to this idea of this moral aspect in Psalm fifty-one. Of the Holy Spirit, right? Psalm 51 was a psalm of repentance after David had gone into Bathsheba and had Uriah, her husband, murdered. So let us return back to Isaiah 63. So let's work our way over to the prophets. And in Isaiah 63, we're going to see these moral or ethical um, and redemptive aspects related to God's Spirit as holy. Uh, Isaiah 63. And and it's going to be in particular, if you remember from last week, related to the Exodus narrative. Now remember, the Exodus was a major paradigm for God's salvation, right? For God's deliverance. This becomes a major paradigm as we go into the prophets and as we think about the New Testament and thinking about um deliverance or salvation. So, um so let us um, let's read Isaiah sixty-three, and we're going to read verses ten through fourteen. If I can have a volunteer read verses ten through fourteen of Isaiah sixty-three. All right, excellent. So we're going to bring out these ideas of the spirit as a person, and specifically a spirit as a person, when we think about these personal aspects um, uh, that are ethical or moral and and redemptive. So, um, So we see in verse 11 that God's spirit is actively present in the wilderness wanderings, right where it says that he set his holy spirit among them and in verses thirteen and fourteen they were guided by the spirit and in verse uh, in verse ten um, uh, they rebelled and grieved his holy spirit again personal terms here we come as to quote Ferguson here we come as near as the Old Testament anywhere does to an explicit and and ferguson he's going to use this term. And, and, and I, I want to define it, explicit hypostatization of the spirit. Not only is a distinction, distinction suggested between God, who's transcendent, or this is like that lofty, far away, separate from creation aspect, and imminent, where he dwells and is close uh, and is near. Um, uh, so not only is there that distinction, but then to grieve, is an interpersonal activity. So what is he bringing out? This is what I want to go back to this word. Hypostatization. We don't talk like that, right? So, yeah, <laughs> so, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep, no, exactly. And, the, and, and, and to that point, so we, we don't generally talk like that And because and, what's going on here, this is just a Greek word that's carried over, but it's got heavy theological usage in the history of the church, right? And so um, uh, we more commonly, and even in the history of the church, use the term person, right? Third person of the Trinity. Well, the more, there's, there's two more technical terms, and the Greek word is hypostatus, right? And, that, and that's what this is here, um, but even that got confusing in the history of the church in the two and 300s, and so then they used a Latin term, which is subsist, substantia, uh, which, which, again, it's a subsistence, right? Again, we don't, we don't talk and use these terms, but I also think it's important that we don't just like gloss over them, right? When the history of the church, these were important terms to make some of these nuances. So, long story short, what are we talking about? That these are personal aspects that we're bringing up about the Spirit in the Old Testament. And the thing is, when we look at the Old Testament, it's more opaque, right? It's, it's darker, it's more fuzzy. So you're like, well, what was the Spirit just a mode of God's power presence or is he truly a person and really what, what Ferguson is bringing out here is this is the, one of the most clear examples when we look at the Old Testament referring to God's spirit as a person right you cannot grieve the air right you cannot grieve uh, you know um, uh, uh, matter that way uh, um, but you can grieve a person so that was your 25 cent word for the week Hypostatization. <laughs> Alright. So then, but let let's let's go further, right? So we're talking about this moral aspect, but, but there is more, right, when we look at Isaiah 63. Uh and, and it's this idea of, of redemption, right? And, and when I say redemption, it's it's just gonna have these connotations, salvation, deliverance, right? It's all under this um, um, um same umbrella. And look with me in, in verse eight, right? Not only do we know this because the term Exodus and all that it implies uh, from the book of Exodus relates to God saving his people, right? The Passover, bringing them through the Red Sea, destroying the Egyptians, etc. But we even see in verse 8 of Isaiah 63, where he says at the end, and he became their savior, right? So this context is a saving context. And um, um, so... So I want to see this, uh, and and we're going to explore this in, in three ways. How do we see the Spirit as the executive or the one who executes the saving activity of God? So the Spirit as the one who executes the saving activity of God. So number one, we see the Spirit associated with the activity of Moses in working miracles. So there's this aspect of miracles um, where we read in Exodus eight nineteen. Actually, let me just go ahead and I'll read that real quick for time's sake. In Exodus 8, verse 19, where it says, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Uh, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So here as the Lord is confirming what is taking place with God's people and deliverance and this word about them uh, to be delivered. Uh, There's a confession that that these miracles are from the finger of God. And the same thing is said in Luke, in Luke chapter 11, in verse 20, we have uh, a similar confession with Jesus when he talks to the Pharisees and he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, you might be asking, well, that's great, Kyle, but where is the mention of the spirit? Well, in the synoptic reading in, um, in Matthew 11, or Matthew 12:28, it says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So we see this association or uh, synonymous use of, between the finger of God and God's spirit. And we see this in redemption, how these miracles were confirming this word of deliverance, or in Jesus' case, his redemptive kingdom is here, and the miracles, right, by whom he's casting out demons, are testifying to this end. So point number two. So we see, one, the spirit related to miracles. And then secondly... How else is the Spirit the one who executes the saving activity of God? Well, the Spirit leads and guides the people into the blessedness of covenant fulfillment. So if, if you're in Isaiah 63 still, look at verse 14 where he says, Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. And there's this great motif or this theme in the Old Testament of rest. Right? God God was to take his people under his rule, put them in his land so they would have his rest. Right? Has this 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 idea of peace, this shalom. And and the Spirit is the one who moves the people in fulfillment of this promise. Right? But these really serve as a type of that greater exodus, that greater deliverance that is brought by Christ, right? And so the Spirit is also the one um, who's at work to this greater fulfillment with Christ and His people and giving them rest in the new creation, right? So we see this correlation between rest that's gained by the Spirit in the Old Testament And then when Jesus says, come to me, all who are heavy and weary, um, or heavy laden, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest, right? We can can bring some of these same ideas together and how the spirit is involved with both, or at least by um, by, um, uh, necessary inference. And then lastly... In Isaiah sixty three, um, so the last point here. So when we think about the Exodus redemption, um, brought about by God, the Savior, it says in um, in verse. Give me a second here. In verse ten, sorry, I lost my uh, lost my spot. In Isaiah sixty three ten, where it says, "But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit." Now, that's familiar language, right? But it's not, I, at least know for me, it's not because I know Isaiah 63 so well. Why do we know this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit, right? And this is not a rhetorical question you guys can answer, right? Where, where does that come from? Where do, we, where do we think about this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit? What's that? Yeah, yeah, in Ephesians. Yeah, where the Apostle Paul, he's talking about... Um, the the believers and living out this new life in Christ, and one of the things that he brings up is what? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Right? Well did Paul just invent this? No. We're we're seeing it built out of the Old Testament, right? And 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 that's what we're going to see, especially as we go into the rest of the chapters, rest of the lessons through the Sunday school, is that the New Testament makes crystal clear what is more mysterious or in these shadowy forms in the Old Testament. So then. Turn real quick. Um, uh, go to go to Psalm 51. I, I said we go back there. I just want to do this real quick.
1: <clears throat>
0: because when when David um, writes um, uh, this psalm of Repentance. And he, and he brings up the Holy Spirit. I want us to see the context of the Holy Spirit because if, if you read, uh, for, um, I believe it's First Samuel, and you see how King Saul lost the Holy Spirit, right? And so then, but, but why did Saul lose the Spirit? What, what was going on, right? And it was, and it had this national element to it, right? That he he was given the Spirit. To rule God's people in Israel, right? But then God took away his spirit, right, from Saul um, and then anointed David, right, who, who was to be king. But I want us to look at Psalm 51 because I don't think that's really what's at the forefront of David's mind. And so look with me in Psalm 51 and l- let's read verses 9 through 12. Um, and I'll just... If, if, Whoever gets there, go ahead and read Psalm fifty one, verses nine through twelve. Turn your face away from my sin, blot out all my guilt. God, create a
1: clean heart for me and renew a set spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your
0: salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a living Spirit. Excellent. So that's what we see here. And and I just want to quote uh, Ferguson here where he says, David's fear of losing the spirit involves more than his adultery as uh, disqualifying him from the high office of king for which he's been anointed. His prayer, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, in verse 11, is exegeted or explained and expounded within the psalm itself by his cry not to be cast um, from the Lord's, what? His presence but rather to have the joy of what salvation restored to him only by possessing the spirit can his own heart be pure and joyful and be kept steadfast and willing now sometimes this might bring up um, a question in your mind right when you read new uh, new testament texts especially like in the book of john where jesus talks about the spirit not yet coming, right? You might think about that in in the book of John, and they, they almost seem like odd texts. Well, what does that mean that the Spirit hasn't come? Does that mean that Old Testament saints were not regenerated or given new life in the Old Testament? Is regeneration or giving new spiritual life just a New Testament reality? And I think Psalm 51 is one indication that the Spirit was at work, even in the Old Testament, giving spiritual life to God's people. And as much as I would, I would, I would love, there's, uh, there's, if we had more time, I would spend some time in Genesis 3 to see. It traces all the way back to Adam and Eve and, and what we see take place in Genesis 3 with creating enmity with the woman and her seed and Satan. And there's, there's a lot more going on there that, that first meets the eye. And John expounds that in 1 John when he talks about being born of God, he, he looks all the way back to the beginning. But again, we, I'm sure we'll have time in chapter 6 you know, when we get there. So just just a little, a little, a little teaser. But, but I do want to bring out that as we're familiar with in Galatians 5, remember the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is, and then Paul gives these ethical qualities that are, that are to be demonstrated by God's people. One of the things that Ferguson points out is that in the New Testament there are several times where where there's these reminders New Testament saints are to follow the faith of Old Testament saints, right You think of like Hebrews eleven or James chapter two um, with Abraham or, or, or James chapter five with elijah right there 's this recalling and reminder and and truly um If we put some of these things together, New Testament believers are to walk according to the Spirit, following the same faith or the same way in which those Old Testament saints walked according to the Spirit, with with that spiritual life given by the Holy Spirit. In other words, or to use an Old Testament phrase, they were to have their hearts circumcised, right? Right? The circumcision of heart was that display of new life through the Spirit. And and, and we see that uh, clearly called out in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And, and like I said, um, we will get more into this idea of, okay, well then if the Spirit's at work in regeneration, in giving life in the Old Testament, well then what is Jesus saying when he says that the Spirit has not yet come, right? And that's a teaser. We're not going to go over that. But we will get to that, right? That's going to be like when we get to chapter three, when we talk about Pentecost, right? And the outpouring of the Spirit. We're going to see a lot of these connections come together. All right. So any questions or comments so far? um, Yes. Yeah. So it just means a person or personal. So the hypostatic union is the two natures in one person. Yep. So just, uh, yeah, just think uh, person. Yep. That's the go-to. Yeah. But not for Ferguson. (laughs) All right. So then on your notes, let's look at spirit and word. So we've talked about the spirit as the energy of life in God, his role in ordering creation, his governing and ordering the creation of the people of Israel, his empowerment of people to follow suit in designing and ordering and governing. We, we look specifically at um, uh, that with, with nations and then also with the tabernacle. And we've also seen his role in salvation, right? That idea with the exodus, with the exodus and even giving people spiritual life. Right, A new circumcised heart. But now we're going to talk about how the Spirit of God relates to the Word of God. And it is in the New Testament where we have more clear statements about the Spirit's work regarding Scripture, God's, God's Word. So, um, if I can have a volunteer read 1 Peter 1 verses 10 through 12, we would be willing to do that? First Peter. First Peter one verses ten through twelve. Go ahead. Concerning this salvation,
1: the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ the of Christ and the It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. But the things that have now been announced to you those who the good news to you by the Holy sent from heaven, into which to
0: Excellent. So um, there's a lot of things that can be said about this text, but I want to just highlight two. So in verse 11... Um, this, uh, as you're inquiring the, this, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories right? so we see this aspect of the spirit and his role at work in revealing right? or, or even in that sense of, of predicting and then in verse 12 who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit so we see this association between the spirit and the word um, now, turn with me just one book over to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, where uh, where there's even greater reflection on this. And and I'll just read uh, verses 20 and 21. Uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke, and here it is, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's a really explicit text. How, how does prophecy come along where we have Scripture, right, in scripturated revelation, God's revelation written down for us? How does it come about? Well, it comes about as God, through the Spirit, moved men or these authors to write the sacred pages of Scripture. And But this idea is not, um, Peter's not inventing some new idea, right? He's drawing on the Old Testament, and he's making it more clear. So like, for example, in Jeremiah 1.4, where it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me. Or in one nine, when he says, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So we see this connection between God giving his word, to the prophets, right? But that's not, that's not as clear. But Isaiah, he, he goes a little bit further. Turn with me back to Isaiah. Isaiah 59. And look with me at verse 21. Isaiah fifty nine twenty one. And I'm going to go ahead and read Isaiah 59, verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So do you see that connection? My spirit and my words, right? Deeply associated together. But then it's in Second Samuel where we see... Uh, a more explicit connection between the spirit and the word. So, look with me at Second Samuel. So, keep going, going back to what are called the former prophets. Second um, Samuel, Second Samuel twenty-three, and in Second Samuel twenty-three, in verse two, where he says, all right, "I'll read verse one." Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And then verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. So we see this, this connection between the Spirit and the word. And I wish we had time... Um, uh, Ferguson does this in his book and it's absolutely fascinating when you look at 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 where it says that all scripture is breathed out by God. That word is theopneustos. It's the, uh, the, the two words for God and spirit in the Old Testament. right? And then you look at Matthew 4, 4 where it says every word that comes out of the mouth of God, or that proceeds from the mouth of God, we see this connection, right? Um, or or um, uh, uh, th- this idea of the breathing out of God's word becomes scripture. And when we put this picture together, it is by his spirit. This idea of this outbreath, right? And when we looked at the Old Testament, the outbreath was ruach, it was spirit. So just some int- very fascinating connections, right, that we sometimes don't immediately pick up on when we think about the spirit and the word at work together. So. So let's go lastly on our notes to hypostatic spirit. Right. And so what does that mean? Right. Hypostatic means person. Yes. All right. Good. Yes. Hypostatic means person. So, this is personal spirit. And I want uh, to quote Ferguson. The Spirit of God, therefore, is not merely a synonym for the power of God. But the question remains, are we to think of the Spirit as a mode of God's presence, or as Trinitarian orthodoxy would later do, in personal or hypostatic terms, right? And we affirm that the Spirit is a person, right? This uh, Trinitarian, that Trinitarian orthodoxy that was developed with the early creeds. He is the third person of the Spirit. And, and Ferguson asks three questions. The first is, is the activity of the Spirit divine activity? And to which we answer, yes, it is. The Spirit's activity is divine or God activity. Secondly, is the activity of the Spirit personal activity and the answer to that is again yes the spirit spirit's activity is personal but now this is now th- this is i think a helpful nuance that that ferguson makes with his third question is the activity of the spirit and he uses again this term hypostatically distinct meaning separate person right we see a distinction of persons and, and, uh, and he, he, here's the way that Ferguson explains it or, or, or really kind of like brings out the question, right? As we get the Old Testament, is, is the spirit merely a mode of God's being, right? Um, uh, uh, the divine viewed from the perspective of his nearness, right? His imminence in the created order in distinction from his transcendence being distinct from creation, far away from creation, and thus akin to expressions as the arm of the Lord, right? So is the spirit of the Lord just like another phrase, like the arm of the Lord who delivered and saved God's people, right? Where it's like a figure of speech, but not a separate person, even though it's a personal-like term. And so um, and so, what, what what Ferguson does is not only do we think about text, but we also use good and necessary consequence from the old testament evidence to build together this thought and again like we've said it is right for us to think of the spirit as the third person of the trinity but why is it why is it that that's more difficult to see in the old testament And the reason why is because the Holy Spirit is only fully revealed to us in and through Jesus Christ. So the Spirit, in a sense, does not truly show himself in the Old Testament because he is um, the Spirit who glorifies Christ. And so it was only proper... How it was the Father working and then the coming of Christ, right? In the same way that the Messiah, the Christ of the Old Testament, was also murky and shadowy, right? And then the, when the Messiah comes, then he says, but there's another helper who will also come, right? And that's the Spirit. So it's not until we get to the New Testament, and, and, and in particular to the apostolic, the apostles writing on behalf of Jesus, representing him, and their letters that it becomes more crystal clear. And uh, Warfield uh, provides a really helpful comment, and he, and he and he does so in particular talking about looking for the Trinity in the Old Testament. And um, uh, I, I want I, I want to read this even if this becomes the last thing that that we look at because it's very helpful, right? When we kind of how should we think about this? He says. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what was in it, but was only dimly or not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the the mystery of the Trinity underlies Old Testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view, right? Like Isaiah 63. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, so it's not a correction. But it is it's perfecting and extending and enlarging of earlier revelation, right? Uh, it was Gerhardus Voss, I and mean, he's talking about biblical theology. But, but he used this expression of a seed, right? What is in seed form later turns into a full tree, even though nothing in the seed, right, from its its nature has changed. And so the same with the Old Testament. And the theology in the Old Testament, nothing is different than what is in the New Testament, but it's not as clear as when you have the full tree. So, uh, unfortunately, for time's sake, as as much as I would like to just get into some of those reasons or thoughts with um, the New Testament looking at the Spirit as God and as a distinct person. uh, Unfortunately, I'm just going to have to commend to you that that, that last part of the section. um, Some really good material there. So let us go ahead and close and give thanks and then we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we worship you. We praise you. And we ask that through the spirit, you would continue to engage in our hearts and our minds to love you. In all of your worth, for your glorious namesake, be with us now as we go to enter and to uh, uh, join this morning in corporate worship. We pray that you would bless it for your namesake. Amen.